if you have a dollar to spend on your brand, spend it on your employees. Because if they don't love your brand, your customers will never, ever love your brand. Every incremental dollar we had, we spent to make the experience of our people better. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm in conversation with and learning from John Ratliff. I've met John a number of times and I've heard him tell some war stories of apple tree answers. But today I really got to grill him. I mean, I love podcasts. You, it'd be rude to just spend 60 minutes asking people questions if it wasn't for the podcast. But I managed to pick his brains. He now spends most of his time helping entrepreneurs, I guess defending entrepreneurs against private equity buyers is probably what he does. And we talk about that and he's got some fantastic tips, you know, like if there's just one thing you're going to do, this is what you should do if you're thinking about selling your company. If, in his opinion, you're mad enough not to get representation on your side of the table. And then we get into his journey at Apple Tree Answers. And I had no idea that he'd started this company from scratch in his own bedroom and then, you know, taken nearly 10 years to get to a million and then six years to 30 million and then a fantastic exit at well over market. You know, he said the public company that bought him overpaid for him. And then as so often happens, the public company that acquired his business managed to destroy most of the value and several years later sold it for I think he said seven cents on the dollar. So a great story. Just how you take, John says, why does he, why does he believe what he believes in that, you know, you should give and not take, you know, Adam Grant, give and take great book and why John's upbringing leads him to behave the way he does and how one magnanimous act on his first acquisition really turned potentially a $400,000 loss into $7 million of value. So a fantastic story. And also managing to unpick something about EMPS that I hadn't understood before. I too, in the past have used, you know, would you recommend company X to a friend or colleague and found it to be pretty rubbish at predicting anything. And John found the same. So they changed the question and his experience with Apple tree lines up with my own experience and clients experience with Friday pulse. So fantastic conversation with John. I loved it. I could have talked to him all afternoon, I think, but I'd let him go. After an hour, longer episode than usual, but full of amazing value. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm John Ratliff from Wilmington, Delaware, just outside of Philadelphia. I would describe myself, I guess, as a lifelong entrepreneur. I've started and sold several companies, including a 
650 person call center company that we exited in 2012, started that company from scratch in 1995. So it was about an 18 year run. And now I actually own and run the coaches organization for scaling up. So about 200 coaches around the world teaching the scaling up methodology based on the book by Vern Harnish called scaling up. Vern's a minority partner in that company. And so I, I run that with him have a co-working space in Westchester, Pennsylvania, again, right outside of Philadelphia. And I do a lot of M&A consulting. So middle market exit strategies specifically geared towards the entrepreneur. In that space, I think obviously M&A and private equity in particular has gotten pretty prolific over the last 20, 25 years. And entrepreneurs on a daily basis are absolutely being had at the table and being taken advantage of. And you spend 10, 15, 20 years of, of incredibly hard work to, you know, to build something from scratch or to, to grow an asset. And then you get to the most important event and it's a complete mismatch. So you've got really sophisticated buyers and very unsophisticated sellers who may sell one or two companies in a lifetime. And it's gotten very, one-sided. So that, that's really my mission in the world is to help entrepreneurs at the at that critical moment not get themselves into a bad spot. Your advice is at least get representation if you're a seller. I am absolutely not advocating that you have to hire an advisor. You just have to go into the transaction knowing that you are completely outmatched by the buyer. The buyer knows things in almost every case that you're not going to know. So if you don't want to pay to be represented, then at least have your eyes open and make sure that, you know, you've got a, a really good attorney, you've got good accountants. I believe strongly in representation, obviously, but I'm biased because it's what I do. But <laughs> I can't think of a single transaction where the fee that we earned wasn't completely free because we, we were able to get more value, way more value for the seller, for our client than they've ever spent in terms of fees with us. It is a tough landscape to try, especially private equity. In, in my view, when, when private equity kind of was in its early stages, they brought a lot of operational excellence. They, bought, they, they brought business strategy and they were good at doing transactions, but now it's their core competency is buying companies for less than they're worth. And yeah, they bring some strategy and some operational excellence and some other things, but the fundamental strength of most private equity firms is buying companies for less than they're actually worth. And that's at the expense of the entrepreneur. I'm making general statements. It's not in every transaction. It's not every private equity firm, but I could fill a thousand hour podcast with horror stories from <laughs> entrepreneurs that got to the end and just, just had them, their businesses decimated. Are there sort of common levers, common things that people are doing? Or is it, you get into a transaction and I was talking to a prospective client this morning who's got sort of two offers on the table and he just said, God, this is so distracting. Yeah. I, I can almost not think about running my business because I've got two people, I think they're going to make me an offer, but then one guy's just gone on holiday for three weeks and they're stringing it out and it's just, you know, using time against him. Yeah, well, that's one of the tactics that is pretty common. And not only using time against it, but it's a very psychological event. So oftentimes I've seen, and I've watched this, literally watched it happen at a meeting table or at normally it's at dinner after a glass or two of wine where 
they start to plant the seeds in the entrepreneur's head of already having the transaction complete and the money's already in the bank. And they, they'll ask questions like, Oh, you're a boater, right? What kind of boat do you think you're going to buy when this is all done? Or where are you going to get a vacation home? So all of a sudden now the buyer or the seller in their mind, the, the deal's already done. The number's been put on the table and the deal's already done. And then to your point, drag it out three, four, six weeks, spouse is starting to get upset. You've lost focus on the business. Things invariably, you know, to start to trend down. And then it's round two of negotiation. And that's when the real negotiating starts. So one of, if, if you're going to get into a, a transaction situation, one of the rules we always say is you want multiple bidders. The bidders need to know they're not the only one. Because as soon as they think they're the only one, they have the upper hand. Number two, you have to be incredibly clear. Due diligence is for confirmation, not renegotiation. So invariably, you get into due diligence. They start digging around and, and oh, I didn't know this, or, oh, this doesn't look quite right. And then they start talking about changing the price. So we are incredibly clear up front. And we've walked, I've had clients walk away from transactions over this very thing. As soon as the negotiating starts in due diligence, we're out the door. Unless you find something that was materially wrong. But the number you put on the LOI is the number you're going to bring to the closing table. And due diligence is not going to change that number. And the second that it does, we'll walk away from exclusivity and we'll walk away from the transaction. And we mean it. And then oftentimes you have to say, we're going to walk away and then they come back in line. So almost every transaction I've been involved in, due diligence starts down the renegotiation path, which we then completely either nip it in the bud or we walk away. If I could impart no other wisdom about M&A, that would be, that would be the one. You have to set the tone early. You can't wait until you're in the diligence process. You have to make that affirmation in the very beginning that we are representing this business in a material way. We're going to go through due diligence. You're not going to find anything and don't even try. Don't even try to start round two of negotiation because it'll destroy our trust and we will walk away. Very good. That's fab. That's great advice. Taking you back to Apple Tree, why did you start a call center business? <laughs> now, I mean, you know, like of all the things, maybe rubbish collection. Yeah. It's not a glamorous business. No, I was a, and I was a dumbass. I started it from <laughs> So, you know, you, you always uh you, you always look back and think if I'd only done this different or that, but but that is one piece of advice. I started that business from scratch 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. I answered more phone calls than probably anyone that ever worked with me. Oh, so when you say you started it, you actually were the guy, employee number one. Yes, and I couldn't afford anyone else. So <laughs> you know, the, good news was, the good news was we weren't getting very many calls because we didn't have a lot of questions. The bad news was the calls would come in at random times throughout the night and day, and so I couldn't really leave. I spent about you couldn't sleep living in an apartment where I started and never left, but. I had a buzzer that was, and this was in the old, you know, early days of Microsoft Windows. So I had this speaker next to my bed and I strung together a bunch of wave files from Microsoft Windows. And 
one was an alarm clock, a buzzer, and a bunch of other stuff. And when the phone would ring in the middle of the night, this obnoxious, and it would only play the sound one time. So it had to be long enough that it would wake me up. So this obnoxious sound would play and I'd wake up and stumble out of bed and piss off my neighbors who could hear it and, and answer the phone. So yeah, I, I started the call center company because right out of college, like eight months out of college, I ended up working for a wireless phone store and then realized that I could probably do it better than the guy that I was working for. So I started my own wireless store. So that it was 1993, the very early days of mobile phones. That went well. I opened a second store and my landlord at that second store had this little tiny old fashioned answering service in the back, which was slips of paper and this big, you know, filing system. They would, they would answer the phone and write a message on a piece of paper and save it. And they were just starting to get into paperless where they could use computers to take the messages instead of slips of paper. And so the guy that I worked for originally in the mobile phone business came to me and said, Hey, would you think about selling your two stores? And I said, sure. And he made me an offer that at the time I thought was really big in hindsight wasn't so good, but sold those two mobile phone stores and needed something to do. So Back then, you couldn't compete in the call center business across state lines because the way the phone companies were structured. So I went to another market in Delaware, um, south of Pennsylvania, where we were, and opened a call center answering service business there with one very stupid employee, which was me. (laughs) Uh, My mom would come in and answer the phone every once in a while, and friends of mine would try and help out, and it, it was a nightmare. It was, I don't remember most of 1996 and 97. I was so sleep deprived. I just think that's brilliant. It was such a good use of your college education. Uh, It was, yeah. And, you know, so I started in 95. It took from 1995 until 2002 to get to a million dollars in turnover. So six or whatever that, six, seven years to get to a million in revenue. And then from that point, we started to do acquisitions and then we you know, grew 30x in the next six years. So, And that, that brings up a great point. We, it would have been much better to buy a little call center that already had some customers and some momentum than to start from completely from scratch. So there's a lesson in there. And I think it's a lesson for anyone coming out of college or grad school now that wants to start a company just buy one that's underperforming. You can oftentimes just get them for acquiring their debt in many cases, or, you know, for not a lot of, for not a lot of money, you can finance it with a bank and the flywheel is already turning and you have some momentum starting completely from scratch, I think is unbelievably hard and not something I would, even though I I just did it again with the, (laughs) not something that I highly recommend. Yeah. We did that from scratch too. Because when you start, I mean, you know, when you start from scratch, that whole startup phase to a million pounds, you know, minimum viable product, you know, you're taking revenue from anybody, you're scratching around. That's, it's hard. Yeah. And to your point, you're taking revenue from anybody and you're saying yes to everything. Then it's hard to cross that divide and start to find your, your niche customers and really focus on what you're best at because 
all the customers that got you from zero to a million are the exact opposite of what's going to get you from a million to 10 and 10 to a hundred. So then you have to start saying no to everybody and it just really creates a lot of chaos. So you don't have to buy a huge company, but some momentum, some, you know, even if it's at a million in turnover, if it's right around a million, there's probably an entrepreneur in that business that has not figured out how to get to the next level and is absolutely exhausted. And would probably take a, a bag of fish and chips and, and <laughs> to escape the hell that they've created for themselves. Well, they've if they've been there for a while, there's there's the entrepreneur and ten to twelve employees. Yeah. They've been up to one and a half million and then they've run out of cash and they've come back again. They've gone down to seven fifty, they've gone up to one and a half million. Yeah. And they just don't know what to do. I mean, I've got a good friend of mine and she said, I build businesses to seven hundred and fifty thousand and then I sell them because I just don't know how to get them past a million pounds. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's true. And they're exhausted typically. Because the stress on that roller coaster wears you out. Somehow people are stuck, aren't they? That there's that if there's two partners in the business, they often get to two and a half million. And then they get stuck. But it's that whole feast and famine, you know, everything has to go through you. You just haven't got good enough people in the company. Yeah. And I think a lot of times you just don't know what you don't know. You don't understand delegation. You don't trust people the right way to do the right things. You haven't built accountability and systems and process. Everything every day is is the result of heroic effort. Yeah. And... You, you run out of heroic effort where you actually don't need any heroic effort. You just need great systems and process and people to run those systems and process. In fact, we've got one of our clients has got one of their core beliefs that sort of sit above the values and it's um, team over heroics, casual success, team over heroics, because they know that heroic effort doesn't scale. And they knew that historically in their business, they lionized the heroes. And it was this deliberate effort to say, we're no longer going to put people on a pedestal for heroic effort. We're going to put people on a pedestal for building processes. That's brilliant because it's true. And we do it in the media as well. There's this myth of the entrepreneurs as, you know, against all the odds. And, and, and listen, that is true. It's a lonely life and it, it's a, it's noble work and it's hard, but at some point can't be about more effort than humanly possible because you're right. That doesn't scale. And then we get past a million and we get into the sort of the gazelle businesses or the scale up companies where, you know, that's, you know, that's where all the jobs get created in, in economies. That's the work that, you know, you and I do day to day, but taking you back to Apple Tree, so one million to thirty million in six years is awesome. What did you exit for? And is the best thing a multiple of revenue or multiple of EBITDA? What's the? So we we were a little we were about two point two five revenue, which equated to about fourteen and a half times EBITDA. We had bought, I think we bought twenty three companies, twenty two or twenty three. And we were on average paying about three to three and a half times EBITDA. So we would buy kind of mom and pop, smaller companies in a given market. And then through operational efficiency and just kind of core knowledge about how to run them a little bit better, we typically were able to improve their site level profitability by about 2x. Uh So our effective purchase price was, I don't know, one and a half to two times what we were able to turn it into. Normally within 60 days, we we could get them from about 15%. And we had a formula. We followed our formula to the T. 
we wouldn't buy companies that were losing money. We wouldn't buy turnarounds. So we wanted a company doing between 10 and 20% profitability. And that was our sweet spot. Mom and pop, typically 20 plus years old, often a husband and wife run the business together, families, and really no one in the family wanted to take it over. And it was time for mom and dad to retire and and we would come in and we we built a reputation for being incredibly fair yep incredibly fair with the seller incredibly fair with their employees so many times we were the sole source bidder you know and i just went through my whole rigmarole about the mismatch between buyers and sellers but we are i think we were terrible at marketing so terrible at marketing our company and terrible at marketing ourselves as buyers of companies. We just weren't good at it ever. I'm still not good at it. It tortures me actually, but we were really good at building our reputation. So that was, that was how we focused. We had a couple of watershed moments. It was interesting. I had uh, my CPA was a good friend and he, he got some sweat equity for helping us navigate the, the M and A landscape in the beginning and, and ended up with a great outcome at the exit. Cause he had a pretty significant, I think he had 20% of the company at the end. So he was a CPA and, you know, I was the entrepreneur and we would often kind of battle over some, some things that, you know, he thought should be one way and I thought should be the other. And, but our reputation meant the world to us. It was like our core reason that people reached out and said, Hey, I'm ready to sell. Would you be interested? And we had a situation where, you know, we were in an industry that, as I alluded to earlier, you really didn't compete with each other in the beginning until the phone companies got deregulated. So for the early part of kind of that little niche call center industry space, it was all these niche players that didn't compete against AT&T. And AT&T was always trying to figure out ways in the U.S. to like screw these little call center people out of like, you know, their customers and stuff. So there was a very familial kind of tight knit community that was part of this national trade association and everybody knew everybody. And it was like a, really a community more than anything. Well, you know, every community has those handful of like elders that are like the thought leaders and, and the most respected and, the ones that are presidents of the board of the trade association every, you know, a couple of years, that kind of stuff. So one of those guys had, his wife had gotten sick, she had cancer and, and he had kind of taken his eyes off the business for a couple of years. And he had a team that was running it and they were doing okay, but the business had kind of contracted. And I mean, he was the guy, right. Everyone looked up to him. So he calls, he says, Hey, you know, Elizabeth's been sick. I'm thinking about selling the company. I know you're the, you're the one to go to. So in, you know, 20 minutes over the phone, we come up with a number and everyone agrees that it's fair. And so we, you know, we get our paperwork together and we go in a couple of weeks later to do our due diligence. And he was actually running the business on Quicken, not QuickBooks, Quicken, the checking out. And it, it just, there, some stuff didn't look right, but you know, we, this guy had, you know, the integrity of a thousand people. He was the guy. So we get in, we buy it. We run our first invoicing, our first billing, first month billing. And I won't get into the, the nitty gritty, but essentially we had overpaid for the company. Nobody did anything nefarious, but because of their bad accounting and, and some other things, we had overpaid for the business by $400,000. So I think we paid $2 million and we should have paid <laughs> a million six. So, so it's, yeah. it's significant. Significant, yeah. 
Yeah. So I called and I, I said, you know, Jim, hey, we ran our first billing here. Here's what happened here. Here's where it was misrepresented. I know you didn't do it on purpose. I know you're not even involved, but technically we're owed $400,000 back from the transaction. And he said, I, you're right. We were totally wrong. That was our mistake. He's like, and if, if I had known that, I never would have sold the business. And, you know, we, we needed the $2 million. That was our retirement number. And, you know, and, and, and again, 1,000%, everything he was saying was true. Nobody acted in, a, in, a, in an inappropriate way. It was a simple, honest mistake. So I had one of those moments where I thought, like, what can we do here to, so that everybody wins? And this guy was probably 6'5", like big fatherly sort of guy. You know, he was a professor at the local university in St. Louis. And like, he's just one of those like larger than life guys. I said, Jim, how about this? Don't pay us back the 400000 It was an honest mistake. We'll honor our number. We'll, I know we're going to grow the business. The business has a lot of potential and you've got a great team. And all that I ask in return is if anyone ever has the opportunity to call you and say, were we fair? Did we, did we take good care of you? And were we good to work with that? If it's in your heart to say something nice, say something nice. This guy starts crying. I am we're no video. Like I'm on the phone with him. He's now profusely crying. And he says, how could you do that? How, how could you ever do that? And I said, listen, I understand you're, you know, this was your retirement. And I'm not going to tell you, you have to say something nice. Only say something nice if you feel it in your heart. He's like, say something nice. He goes, I promise you, I will make this up to you. I will find you more sellers. I will make this up to you. And I'm like, you don't have to, you don't owe me anything. You don't have to make it up to me. Just, you know, we're good. He proceeded to find another probably seven or $8 million (laughs) over the next two years. We were... Every time I turned around, someone said, Jim Marchbank said, I have to call you. Jim Marchbank said, I have to call you. That $400,000, we got like a 17X return on at the end when all was said and done. So, you know, I, I think we were known as if you, if you want to sell and you want to be treated fairly, call these guys. So what is it in your life, though, that makes you act like that? It's a great question. My dad was the youngest of five and raised in Ironton, Ohio and Kentucky and parts of West Virginia. And literally like dirt floor, coal mine poor. As he grew up, my grandmother remarried and his stepfather was not really a nice guy. And they had another son. So my dad had a half brother and that son was treated like gold. And my dad was just sort of marginalized. And when it came time for my, my dad graduated from high school and he wanted to go to the university of Delaware and he was, he needed like $500 or some obscenely small amount of money to go. And his stepfather wouldn't pay for him to go to college. So, and my dad was as competitive a human being as you've ever met. So he ended up going into the military and then worked his ass off there and, and put himself through night school when he got out and got a, a pretty good job in marketing. And then his career just took off and he became 
he was a Fortune 500 C-suite executive, and all through just gutting it out and hard work. And but he never forgot, I think, where he came from, and he uh, he treated everyone, everyone, like gold. If we were at a hotel, you know, and the and the housekeeping staff all the way to. CEO to Fortune 500, everyone was the same and everyone got treated the same. And I think by osmosis, maybe I learned that lesson. And, and you know, I, my brother's the exact same way. It's just always been how we've, how we're wired. So I think that then helps me understand what, how you ran Apple Tree, because you did some counterintuitive things with your employees. We did. <laughs> yeah. You sound like my partner, the accountant. <laughs> the the coolest moment was when we sold the company. We were we were in a conference room at a hotel and we got the we got the news that the wire cleared the bank and obviously popped some champagne and and my partner said, you know, I, the number one thing you taught me was there's not a line item on the P and L for how you take care of people, but it's the most important thing that you do. And he said I I never would have learned that lesson without, you know, working with you. And, and I really believe that. I still believe that to my core that, you know, if you have a dollar to spend on your brand, spend it on your employees, because if they don't love your brand, your customers will never, ever love your brand. We spend all these dollars externally on brand, and then we don't spend them internally on the team. And every incremental dollar we had, we spent to make the experience of our people better. Cause you, you hit the nail on the head. It's a lousy, unsexy, crappy job. Being a call center person is not fun. And I felt like it was our responsibility to, to honor the fact that it was a hard job and do whatever we could to make it, you know, as comfortable as possible. Once you, you know, you buy a business, what, what was your playbook? So we would do a couple things. One, we had some rules that we never violated. One rule was nobody gets fired. We're not we're not cutting costs on the way in. We're if we buy them right and we do what we know we can do, we don't have to cut any jobs. Even if people are redundant, we'll find another place in our organization for them. Two was everyone starts with their their full tenure from how long they had been with the previous company, but a clean sheet of paper with us. So we would get rid of any you know. You're on your final warning, you're this, you're that, any of that stuff. That all went away. Another was we would never, as much as we could do it around health insurance, we would we would never cut any benefit. So, for instance, we bought a company in Sacramento, California, and they had a policy that for Christmas you got you got a thousand dollar bonus, thousand dollar bonus for every five years, or it might have been two thousand for every five years of tenure that you had. Well, they had two employees that were over 35 years of tenure. Those employees were getting bonuses that were like, you know, a quarter of their, their annual comp when no one else in the company was, you know, getting that kind of bonus. But we, we just, that was a rule. We wouldn't cut a benefit and we would grandfather people in with that kind of stuff. But then when we, when we would get in, we would on, in the very beginning, we would, bring our brand internally. So the Apple tree brand started day one internally, but externally we would keep the customer facing brand, the old one for at least six months to a year. And almost every time we would go in, we knew they were underpricing. So we would raise prices, but we would raise prices under the old brand that we had bought. So we would do damage. If there's damage to be done to that brand, 
knowing that we're going to change it out for ours and you know in six months to a year and so did that did that mean if if apple tree's service level was better than the old brand they got the new price on the old service and then they switched to the better service no they got the we would we would improve our service their right, service okay. from day one we just you know it, it might have been called xyz communications we would raise prices on letterhead that said xyz communications and now we would write a really thoughtful letter about why we were doing it and the investments we were making and improving and we wouldn't tell the customers the company had been sold for about okay. six or so okay in a lot of cases with these smaller call center companies there's times of the day that are not efficient to staff like overnight's one example and because you have to be there 24 7. so there were economies of scale that we could create by maybe shifting some of their overnight traffic to a centralized location that we already had and that overnight person then might end up being a day shift person or they might be in the pool of our overnight people so they could answer for other locations etc so we would we would typically be able to find about 10 points of margin just in efficiencies around staffing and billing so between the price increase and the and the operational efficiencies we would in about 60 days in most cases double the profitability of what we bought but that only worked if they were already profitable. Again, you can't do turnarounds without cutting people, and and we that was one of our things we wouldn't do. So you also had a thing about chairs, there. Yeah. So so again, we brought our brand in on day one, and the goal was to get them to. So when you buy a company, and I learned this lesson the first the first business we ever bought was in Pensacola, Florida, and the guy we bought it from, I'll just say, was not a super nice guy. Really hated his employees. I mean, vilely hated his employees, and was derogatory and, and just not a good person. So I have a conversation with him ten minutes before we're going to announce to the staff that the company sold, and it was a disgusting conversation. And we walk out, and and he was, you know, saying stuff about this one and this one and this one. And those same three women, we walk out and announce that, you know, the company's been sold and they're hysterically crying saying, please don't do it. Mike, don't do it. You can't do it. And I'm like looking at them and thinking if they knew 10 minutes ago, what this guy was saying, they would be dancing in the streets, but all they could, all they could think about in that moment was I don't like change and I'm going to lose my job. So in the beginning for us, we were super demonstrative about, you're not going to lose your job, and we're going to make this a better situation than it was yesterday. It's, it's going to be better under our ownership than it was under the previous. So on the second day, and every company we ever bought, 23 out of 23 times, the people were sitting in office chairs that were terrible. You know, the, the kind where the, the wheel fell off and you spend eight hours like this, or you know, one arm doesn't go down. It's just terrible. The rip and cigarette burns, you name it. I mean, the, the chairs were deplorable. So on the second day, we would come in and we've already pre-ordered Aeron chairs, the Herman Miller Aeron chair, which is like the gold standard, if you know, depending on who you believe, in office chairs. And it's got a video on the importance of ergonomics and how to set it up and all, you know, all the stuff. We had we had a a documentary film guy on staff, he'd make a little video. It's, it's been in movies, it's been in TV shows, this silly chair, it's in the Museum of Modern Art. 
And so we would do this cool video about why we bought the chair. We'd tie balloons to them. We'd wheel them in. We'd have everyone get up out of their crappy chair and we, you know, we'd put the air on chairs in. And then if we could, we would do something demonstrative with the old chairs. One place we were able to throw them off the roof. Another place we were able to, the fire department came out and they burned them. Like it was, you know, we would try and make it a big event. And the message was, listen, we're, we're here for the long term. We're here to make your situation better. This is a $750 chair. We want you to sit in the best chair you can possibly sit in. And that's how we feel about, you know, the frontline employee is the most important asset, the most important person in the company. And we want you to have the best. And then supervisors and managers got the best of what was left over from <laughs> the crappy chair. So they were only for the frontline. It was interesting years later when uh, we sold to a publicly traded company and and they wanted our playbook around acquisitions in the call center space. So Kevin, who I talked about earlier, who's one of our scaling up coaches now, who was COO at Apple Tree, Kevin ordered, you know, 45 Herman Miller air on chairs. And the head of HR came to him and said, Kevin, what, what the hell? I, what is this? I, I can't approve this purchase order. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's what we do on day two, the chairs, we wheel them in. And she goes, our CEO doesn't sit in an air on chair. And, and Kevin goes, yeah, neither did ours. It was only for the front line. And she's like, well, I, I can't authorize that. So that was the end of the, uh, well, that was the end of the air on chair for the next couple acquisitions. So they realized they were making a mistake and then they went back to buying them. But yeah, no, I mean, I didn't sit in an air on chair. I was in a step or two down steel case chair. But our frontline, every frontline employee, we wanted them in the best. What's the Achilles heel? It's staff turnover, I guess, in call center businesses. So what, when you did these things, what, what were you able to... I mean, I, you know, I, I did some work years ago with Nationwide Building Society in the UK, and they'd been able to... They were able to track the revenue to the organization directly to tenure of the financial services advisors in the branches. And so I guess the same is true in call centers. You know, I'm a customer. I've trained you how you want me to act. And as long as the people stay in the call center, everything's groovy. You change the people and my service will go to shit and I might cancel. Yeah, there's a lot of anecdotal knowledge that builds up over time that you can't... I mean, we had systems that would instruct our our we called our frontline employees experts. That's another big thing in mind is what you call your people matters a lot. And they were experts. So we, we called them experts. So we had systems that would guide the expert and, you know, what to do and, and instructions on how to handle, you know, different customers needs, but there was so much anecdotal that we couldn't capture in that system. And even as simple as pronouncing the name the right way. So, you know, imagine you, you're answering the phone for a company in their name and, and they have a complicated name or, you know, it's got an accent, like, you know, whatever it is, it, just getting the name right half the time was a challenge with new employees. So, and you, you certainly don't want your customer to call in to, you know, pick up messages or, you know, give instructions and, and hear the company name mispronounced. So <laughs> we went from about 150% turnover to 18% frontline employee turnover. And we tracked that number maniacally. That was a big driver for us. And before we were recording, we were chatting about customer sat net promoter score. Because you you also do a CEO bootcamp and you were just saying that you still are, well, and I meet clients as well who who have never heard of net promoter score. So I won't even go into what it is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Fred Reichel, 2002, Harvard Business Review, net promoter score, 
Google that. Yeah. If you've not heard of it, what use did you put that to at Apple Tree? So we did a couple of cool things with Net Promoter Score. We did a customer and an employee Net Promoter. And I think we did them both quarterly. Um, but one of the cool things we did on the customer side was the way we were structured, we would we kept individual locations and geographies in place. So I I mentioned Sacramento. We had a you know 30 person little location in Sacramento, for example. So we would net promote by location and we would kind of keep track by location of what those scores were. And net promoter is literally based on a 10-point scale. Zero to six is detractor, seven and eight is neutral, nine and ten is a promoter, and you figure out the net. So anyone that scored a zero to six, we did what you would obviously do. We'd have the customer service manager give them a call and find out what was going on, why they were, you know, zero to six. But then the seven and eights that were neutral, like we were close, right? So how can we get you over the line so that you're actually happy and not just neutral? So we would have the site level operations manager call them because typically it was some little thing that was happening that we weren't aware of that was an annoyance. We weren't pissing them off, but we weren't delighting them either. So I wanted the, the site level manager to make that call. And then the nines and tens, we had the salespeople call not to ask for a referral. In fact, they were forbidden from asking for a referral. Simply to say, hey, I just called to say thank you. You scored us a 10. Can you tell me one or two things we're doing that, that are making you think we're a 10? So now you're filling your salespeople's heads all day long with positive things that are going well that then they naturally can start to share with prospects when they're on the phone. So that was a big kind of secret for us. Salespeople didn't like doing it, but... You know how salespeople are, right? They're, they they need constant reinforcement. We don't need to worry what they like and don't like. Exactly. That's the least of our worries. Exactly. Exactly right. So, <laughs> and then on the employee side, it was interesting. So we were we were in the call center space, which is one of the most measured industries in the world. You measure everything: how long it takes to answer the phone, and do this, and do that. So there's data and statistics like crazy. So I happened to read the book Moneyball. I don't know if you're familiar with Moneyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About yeah. how for 100 years, these guys speculated that baseball managers and baseball teams may be measuring stats that don't correlate to winning. They're just the ones everyone else talks about and everyone else measures. Therefore, they're the most expensive stats to pay for when you go to the free market and try and bring players in. The ones that score the highest on these arbitrary set of stats are the ones that are the most expensive. And these guys speculated, maybe they don't mean as much as we think they mean. So I read the book and I thought, you know, we're measuring all this stuff too. In fact, I was on the board of our trade association and we had this national award of excellence, which was a mystery shopper program where, you know, we would get 10 calls a, a year that got graded. And if you scored a certain score, you won this award of excellence. So we took that internally. Every employee had 10 calls a month measured. That was 500 frontline people, 10 calls a month scored. So it was massively expensive. And, and we thought it you know, really meant a lot to what our quality was all about. So I read Moneyball and I think, what if we're measuring the wrong stuff? I go into my overworked, already overworked COO, Kevin. I said, hey, we need to correlate these quality scores by location with customer retention. And I want to know that what we're measuring is creating the outcome we want, which is customer retention. 
So the universe has a sense of humor and the highest quality score in the entire company had the worst customer retention and the worst quality score in the company had the highest retention. <laughs> and then in between, there was no correlation whatsoever to quality score and customer retention. So here we are following the advice of our industry. The whole industry is measuring something that doesn't matter. And I had 24 locations that we could prove that out, that it doesn't matter. And we were spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and, and praising people and yelling at people and over stuff that meant nothing. So we went back and we looked for what's our money ball stat? What's our hidden number that we can find that correlates to customer retention? And we happened to be doing employee net promoter score as well. And we were scoring by location the net promoter score for each site. And so we looked at that data and with about 90% correlation, net promoter score correlated to customer retention, which was our stat, our success measurement. And I know it's rocket science that happy employees actually create <laughs> happy customers, but nobody else in the entire industry was measuring employee satisfaction and happiness. Well, that comes back to what you said earlier, which is if you had a dollar, spend it to make your employees love your company because your customers can't love it with, unless they do. I absolutely agree with you there. Exactly right. Spend all your brand and marketing dollars internally. So we started doing that, and we, we really started to focus on that number and how can we drive the employee net promoter score. Now, one key distinction in that we started out asking the net promoter question, which is based on your experience in the last 90 days, how likely would you be to refer someone to work at Apple tree? And the first round of scores came back and I was kind of surprised that they weren't as high as I, as I thought they would be. So, and we had, it was optional. You could put your name on there or not. So and most people would put their name on. And I happened to see this one score from an employee that I knew she was all in, right? She loved her job. She loved being there. She was one of the first we ever hired. And she was like, you know, if you're going to do Mission to Mars, she would be one of the Mission to Mars and Jim Collins core value. Yeah. And I see her score. She scored us a four out of 10. And I thought, well, that's really weird. So I pulled her aside. I said, hey, if you don't want to answer, you don't have to. But I know it seems like you really like it here. You're like one of our biggest cheerleaders. And I saw your net promoter score and you scored us a four out of 10. She goes, yeah. I said, why are you not happy? She goes, no, I love it here. I said, well, why, why is it a four? She said, well, you said, how likely would I be to refer one of my friends here? She said, this job is really, really hard. And I would never, ever refer anyone to work here because I'm not sure they'd be able to do the job. And I was <laughs> like, okay, we have the wrong question. So we changed uh -huh. the question to, based on the last 90 days, how happy are you at Apple Tree? And then that was the, that, that subtle distinction was massively important. Uh, that's really interesting. I work with a Nick Marks at Friday Pulse in the UK. And what they do is they ask, lots of our clients use his tool and they, they, they ask on a Friday, how happy were you at work this week? Because happiness is a thing that people can tell. I think their data is 6,000 teams, 1,000 companies, the happiest teams are 20% more productive. It's an easy question to ask. Happy staff, happy customers. It's remarkable in its simplicity, that is for sure. <laughs> I know. So I've pulled a load of great stuff out of your 
out of your brain and we've shared it with people. But is there is there something that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? So I alluded to it before, and I'll say it again maybe more succinctly. I started the company from scratch, completely from scratch. You know, I, I literally was in a an apartment with the computer next to my bed and taking calls in the middle of the night and all those things. If I knew then what I know now, I would have done whatever it took to buy a small company to start, to have a little bit of momentum, to not have to start the flywheel from you know a dead stop. I think that if I look back, that was probably one of the things. The other thing, and it's something that I still am, am struggling with and, and have a hard time cracking, but learning marketing as much as humanly possible. I think the difference between scalable and not scalable, it really comes down to how good you are at the marketing side. And I think so many of us as entrepreneurs or founders or even CEOs advocate marketing responsibility and it's gotta be core. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard doing marketing. Well, is difficult, but I think it's the most important skill or at least it's the most important core competency that a company can possess. You can have the greatest products and services in the world, but if people don't know and, they, and you can't tell your story and no one finds out about it, it none, none of it matters until there's a customer. Oh, well, and so often the not the best product wins. No. Even the Apple iPhone, when they launched it, it's a bit of a crap phone. Yeah. Tesla wasn't a great car. Exactly. VHS, Beta Max, you know, you could, there's loads of, you know, Microsoft Word. Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> right? I mean, you look at Jimmy Buffett, a mediocre musician, mediocre voice, one of the greatest marketers of all time. Yep. So, yeah, good, excellent. Have you have you written a book about Apple Tree Answers? No, no, no. no. I should have written this book a million times. Yeah. There's a book in me somewhere. Yeah, Just there is probably. <laughs> um, so what else, if people can't read the work of John Ratliff, what, uh, what should they read? What's, what's been inspirational for you on the journey or what have you read recently you think's a good summer read? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's going to sound like a cliche, but I, I, I strongly believe scaling up is a must read for every entrepreneur. Obviously we're in that business since what we do. So there's some five, <laughs> but I also think the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, um, is one yeah. of the most important books I've ever written too, especially for an early stage entrepreneur that's that was the moment that the curtain got pulled back for me that i had to think about the business as something bigger than myself and separate from me and i think so many of us associate our business with our ourselves and our lives and i think that's a, a dangerous path recently i'm a huge kind of believer in you need to be balanced and holistic as an entrepreneur and there's a book called breathe okay that we've recommended this year. And I think, I think Vern actually called it one of the five most important books of 2021 or 2020, 2020. Um, but it's all about why we, uh, why we breathe the way we do and, and how it impacts our health and our life. And then I, you know, I, I'm, I like the classics too. And I, I think there's never like, there's never harm in rereading some of the classics and the, the, the goal by Eli Goldratt about the theory of constraints five dysfunctions of a team. We do a book club at, at Align five now, and we just reread five dysfunctions. And that was our quarterly book club book. Th those are probably the, 
the key ones. And I've been listening to a lot of stuff. I, I actually was listening to Stephen Kotler, his books on flow, Stealing Fire and, and some of his other books on flow. He just, Stephen Kotler just came out with a book called The Art of the Impossible. And I really like his style. Like he's a, he's a pretty easy read, but I think it's, you know, there's a lot of impact. So many times, you, you know, you've got a 200 page book, you get the idea in page 11 and then it's 181 pages of like, you know, filling in examples. But he, I think he's really good. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's funny. I was chatting to a client this morning and he said, I've just finished scaling up. Man, he said, I'm glad I've got some help. <laughs> that is a dense book. It is. It is. It's like it's like reading a college textbook. I know Vern said he'd re, he'd redone the audio, but I'm so pleased he's done that. I had one client say, "I'm going to listen to it as I drive back from Switzerland." He said, "Dom, I listened to the first thirty minutes. I had to turn it off. It was going to make me crash. It was going to put me to sleep on the motorway with my family in the back of the car." <laughs> <laughs> he did re-record it, which was smart. Truth be told, I'm not sure I've ever read Scaling Up cover to cover, but I've read parts of it hundreds of times. But yeah, it's it's tough to sit down and go cover to cover. What I did recently, I reread Rockefeller Habits, and I can't remember when I'd last read it, but I've got I've got a first edition that I pulled off the shelf and actually read it in hardcover from my time when I was at Rackspace. And I just sort of went through that and I thought, God, you know, so many things. I, you know, actually, I, I'd forgotten how many things that are in my head had come from that book. So that, that's the last one I'll say is um, I just finished Uncommon Service by Francis Frey. Again, a classic, but a lot of the stories that, you know, that Vern still tells came from, came from Francis. She's good. I had her on the podcast. She gave me a really hard time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> right, John, absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thanks for having you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. It's fun to reminisce about some of these things I haven't thought about in quite some time. <laughs> The Jim Marchbank story. I haven't thought about that in forever, so it's cool. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.